right, so I'm sporting this this morning. Several of you have come up just for future reference. When you see somebody wearing a Band-Aid, it's not best to poke it because many of you have done that already this morning. What's that? Um, that is six stitches that's there. Uh, I had my annual visit to my dermatologist, and, uh, you know, it's never good. He, uh, I go semi-annual, actually, because I produce a harvest of these things on a regular basis. And uh, it's not good when he's doing the once over and he goes, oh my gosh, look at that. And that's literally what he did. I'm like, oh, jeez. So uh, biopsy came back positive, which, you know, for me, it's an annual thing that the biopsy comes back positive. And I can't remember if this time it was a basal cell or a squamous cell, but it's a non-threatening life form or uh, skin cancer form. And so I went back this week and I got it removed. Why am I telling you this story? Well, number one, so you won't push on it later. Um, <laughs> Number two is to let you know just the kind of pastor I am. Do you know you think the average pastor would be up here today if he had six stitches put in his arm? No. I am suffering for the gospel and for you, my beloved brothers and sisters. Pressing on, because that's the kind of pastor I am. Those really aren't the reasons I'm bringing it up. I'm bringing it up because of the conversation that I have regularly with my doctor at Sloan Kettering. A brilliant uh, man. Uh, every time I ask, I see him, I, and I go, <laughs> unfortunately, I go a lot. Um, every time I go, he asks me about you guys. He, uh, he finds it really interesting for some reason that I'm a pastor, and uh, he, he oftentimes says he can't believe it, which is what some of you are saying. And um, he always says two questions, how is your congregation, and what are you teaching them? And so we have these spiritual conversations regularly to the point that, especially this time, this time we got into it so deep and he's just so curious about this stuff, but he's a brilliant guy and so he's wrestling through these concepts. He forgets that there's other patients there and uh, he'll just sit in the room and ask me questions and this week they had to come in and his staff is like, doctor, there's other patients that you got to get to. So this week's conversation with my doc, it, it's what really kind of spurred me on to, to talk to you this morning. Uh, this is a very bright guy. Albert Einstein College of Medicine, I think the 13th ranked medical school in the country, NYU Fellowship, author of four books. I want you to get the picture. And so this week when he asked me about you guys and what I was going to be talking to you about, I knew I was going to get a rise out of him. Um, I knew that he was going to be fascinated and maybe offended by it because my doctor is, by his own admission, not a Christian. He tells me that all the time. He says he's, uh, he's thinking about these things. He would tell me, I'm a spiritual guy. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm open to the things of God, but I just don't know. And so this week when he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, this week um, we're talking about the exclusivity of Christ. And so his reaction was a bit like many of our reactions. When you mix the word exclusive and you tie it to a religious system, everybody gets nervous, right? He paused for a moment and he reflected, um, and he shared that he was a guy of faith, but it, that he wasn't sure, based on what he had studied, that if at the end of the day any religious system was any better or any different than any other religious system. Of course, I, I respect his opinion on that. I know where it comes from. Look, it's a common opinion, right? You can understand why people don't like tying exclusivity and religion together because religious people over the centuries that have tied their faith to exclusivity have been responsible for some pretty horrendous stuff and their insistence that their way is the way. And if you don't conform to the way they live, then you won't live. 
eternally or depending on how barbaric their nature was, maybe even right now. So we don't like exclusivity mixed with religion. And I get that. It's dangerous. I understand that. And so because we don't like it and because it's dangerous, most folks today, maybe this is where you are this morning, most folks today have just kind of come to the place where they're, they're like, look, I believe in God. I, I believe in, in, in faith. I, I, I just think at their core, they're all kind of the same. And there's some truth to that. I mean, honestly, right? Like most religious systems would acknowledge as a God, that he's good. I'm not aware of too many religious systems that say, yeah, the God at the top of the ladder, he's just bad, right? Most people would say, yeah, I believe in God. I believe, in he's, I believe he's good. Um, most, uh, most religious systems, I would say every religious system, has a code of ethics or morals or laws or obligations, things you need to do and things that you should stop doing, Right? But, but this is the kind of thing that leads people to believe that in the end, it really doesn't matter which religion you're into. You can kind of pick whichever one you want, you know, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity. It, it, look, just pick one and follow the rules, and in the end, they'll all lead to God, and it'll be okay. Now, a couple things. We know at least if we've been involved in any one of those religious systems, or really any religious system, that that's not true, right? I mean, there are fundamental and foundational differences in what Jews and Christians and Muslims and Hindus believe. In fact, I would argue it's kind of intellectual laziness to just say, well, whatever, they all lead to the same place. It's not a big deal. Don't worry too much about uh, any of them. But I can understand how people get to the position. It's not unreasonable. And here's why, because so much of religion is tied up in the rules and the obligations of the faith, the oughts and the ought not tos. Here's what's really fascinating. I spent some time on this this week. Uh, many of these, in fact, on just about every religion that's out there, and, and, and I was looking at a lot of them, they all have a set of rules. So you can understand why somebody outside of any one particular reason would say, these things all have rules, and as long as you try and you try to do your best, at the end it'll all work out. For example, now stick with me, okay, because this is going to bother some of you, and you can email Greg Billing. Um, <laughs> for example, did you know that Christianity does not have exclusivity when it comes to the golden rule? Did you know that we're not the only ones who believe the whole do unto others as you would have them do unto you? That is not a, an exclusive Christian teaching. Norman Rockwell, you know, the great Norman Rockwell, the painter that, you know, kind of we all love, um, cover of Saturday Evening Post in 1961 called The Golden Rule. He actually did a study on this, and he went and he studied at least 10 different world religions, and every one of the 10 had one version or another of The Golden Rule. I, can, I wrote a couple down for you. Buddhism, hurt not others with that which pains yourself. Hinduism, this is the sum of duty, do naught to others, which if done to thee would cause thee pain. Islam, actually Islam puts this beautifully, no, no one of you is a believer until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. Interesting, right? Because remember, if anything's true, it's of God. All truth is God's truth. And so the golden rule actually finds itself into most of the great religions of the world. 
See, another thing that's interesting about religion is that every religion, at one level or another, has a set of rules, laws, if you will, things that you should do and things that you shouldn't do, behaviors that God approves of, behaviors that God frowns upon. And what's fascinating about this is that, believe it or not, they're all pretty similar. Did you know that? See, this is why people tend to go, well, yeah, you know, they're all kind of the same. A lot of you know who C.S. Lewis is. C.S. Lewis was the Oxford and Cambridge educated British writer and theologian, really famous now for writing the Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis wasn't always a Christian. He was pretty much an avowed atheist until he came to understand Jesus and the exclusivity thing of Jesus. And he kind of changed, most of his books are written from now that Christian perspective and the exclusivity of Christ's claim. Here's what's interesting. In 1943, Lewis authored a book called um, The Abolition of Man. And in it, he detailed, and by his own admission, he said, this is not exhaustive, but I'm telling you, he came up with religions and cultures I've never heard of before. He looked at the commonality, he studied the commonality of all cultures and all world religions. What he was trying to do is, is in the day, education, uh, the education systems were becoming very relativistic. And so he was arguing against relativism, and he was saying that there is such a thing as objective truth and natural law. All of that might sound very philosophical and academic to you, but what he was trying to do was show, what he did do in the appendix of the book, was show that every faith and every culture that has existed that he could find shared eight laws Every major culture had eight oughts and eight ought nots. So here they are. This is what has bound religion together over the centuries. Number one, the law of general beneficence. I don't know why I struggle with that word too. The law of general beneficence. This is that you should do unto others. You should be kind to others. You should do unto others as they would do to you. The second thing that almost every culture and faith system has as a law, as a truth, as a doctrine, is the law of special beneficence, which means that if you're going to treat others well, you really have to take responsibility for your family, your friends, your community, that you owe them a special amount of be beneficence. Third was duty to parents, elders, and ancestors. Every major culture and every major religion has taught you should honor your mother and father. Can I get an amen? amen? How about four? Every major religion has this as a tenet or a law, that you have special duties to your children and to your posterity. You're, you're to honor the elderly. You're to take care of them. You're to, you're, you have responsibilities for your children. Next, the law of justice. These are the things that you're familiar with from religion. Be honest. Don't steal. In fact, did you know that every major world religion actually has as part of its laws this underlying concept of you don't sleep with your neighbor's wife? That's mostly because I think we have a problem. Apparently, we have an issue with this, right? That all of the religions have had to kind of take that one on and say, you know, we don't do that. We don't steal. We don't lie. We don't cheat. That's the law of good faith and veracity. There's the law of mercy. You take care of the poor and the weak and the marginalized. And then the last one, the law of magnanimity, which is you put others before yourself. Most of those laws are basically if, if you need to kind of take a bullet for somebody else, you take the bullet so that somebody else can live. This concept of I'm going to put the wants and needs and desires of somebody else ahead of me. 
Now, if I'm telling you all this this morning, you're going, oh, man, I thought Christianity was about the golden rule. I thought that was what underlied it. Well, it's, it's not. It's not even what makes it different. And if you thought what made Christianity different than all world religions was our commandments, that, well, you know, you got these 10, that's, you know, that's not it either. And I, I, you know, again, email Greg, but I'm not, I'm not debunking Christianity by saying the message is not all, at least the laws are not all that different than other religions. What I'm, what I'm saying is that the laws of most of the world's religious and cultures over the centuries are not that different than ours. For example, how many of you have a friend that is a non-believer? Rave your hand if you have a friend that would say, yeah, he's not really a follower of Jesus. Okay, now, does that friend love his children? Does that friend seem to honor his parents? Are you aware that that friend is just like, hopefully he's not sleeping with your wife, right? Like, you know, is is he stealing, right? No, probably not, at least in, in, in big times ways. Why? Because this, this, there is a natural truth at work here. And now this should not be shocking to us as believers. The Apostle Paul, who was a late convert to Christianity himself, he was a chief Pharisee. He was a chief law keeper. He had all the Jewish law. He wrote of a phenomena in his letter to the church at Rome. Here's what he said. He goes, indeed, when Gentiles, those are non-Jewish people, when Gentiles who don't have the law, he's talking about the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, right? When Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature things required by the law, but for some reason this guy doesn't even have the law, but he seems to be acting it out. When they do these things, they are a law for themselves. In other words, there's something going on. They have a law within them, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences are bearing witness. And their thoughts, listen to this, their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times, even defending them. And so Paul introduces, introduces us to a third thing. Uh, he's saying there's nothing peculiar about the law the Jews have been following. In fact, the Gentiles who don't have it, it turns out they have similar laws because that's the way God created us. We have this natural law within us, not written on tablets of stone, but in our hearts. But then he addresses the third thing that every religion has in common. In most major religions, that is, it's, it's this, that the law does one of two things. You can see it in the last line of what Paul wrote there. The law does one of two things. Remember, we have the golden rule. Everybody's got the golden rule. We've got these things, a lot of the commandments. Most of us share these commandments. These are laws. But the law does one of two things. Here's what what it does. Sometimes the law accuses us, and at other times we use the law to defend ourselves. Now, you know this is true. If you're a Christian this morning or if you're just here because the coffee's free and you can get rid of your kid for an hour. Because you live by a a rule. You live by a belief system. You have within you an internal code of ethics, a belief in a right way of living and a wrong way of living. It's been hardwired into everybody. And what happens because we all have this law is one of two things. Pride you know, I'm really good at keeping the law, or guilt, eek, I'm really bad at these things. I think I could be in trouble. 
See, every human being has this conscience, and every human being knows that he falls short of even the natural laws written on his own heart. I mean, put back up those eight laws, right? Do you remember when you were driving down 80 recently? Now, remember, if you're driving down 80 in the morning, going eastbound at around, I don't know, 7 o'clock, 7.30 in the morning, everybody ever go by the entrance to Route 287? And the entrance to Route 287 has a special kind of backup, uh, one I like to call absurd. And so when I go to have to get on 287, sometimes I believe in the rule, the law of general beneficence, and I, four miles before 287 comes, pull into the line. But if I'm truthful, most of the time, I... I, I you know, I mean, come on, this is ridiculous. Wouldn't we all agree? So what I do is I just kind of pretend that I didn't know 287 was coming, <laughs> right? And I put the surprised look on my face to the drivers that I'm... And I kind of jersey slide it in right before I get there, right? Now, I've been driving Route 80 for 40 years, and do you know 287 surprises me a lot? I really, I often don't see it coming because I have a hard time with that law, do unto others. I should probably call my mom more. I haven't really gone to any nursing homes lately. Put others before yourself. I don't know about that one. Be honest, don't steal. I mean, don't steal. I'm not even going to get into the next one, but I'm good with that one, just so you know. Um, uh, Law of good faith, veracity. I mean, if you never lie. See, here's the problem. Everybody that's ever lived is tied into a religious system. You can put any name you want on it. That says, here's the code. Don't violate the code. And so when we get tied into the law, the law results in one of two things. I either feel justified by the law, defended by it, or condemned by it. It's where religion leads, condemnation or elevation. That's the bottom line of religion. I either come to the place where I realize since I can't live up to what I know is true, I'm going to have to do something more. Some of you have grown up in a religious system like this. I have to try harder. I have to do better. I have to do more. I have to give more. I have to pray more. I have to go to church more. I have to serve more. I I, I know I haven't been good keeping these things. I mean, I know that there, I mean, I'm not a bad person, but I know that there's some stuff. And so what I'm trying to do is assuage my fear and guilt that I might be at odds with God. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do more. Some of you, listen, let's be honest. Some of you are here this morning for that reason. I need to get my life in order. I understand there are things that I am involved in that are probably not pleasing to God, so I'm going to go to church and get my life back in order. And maybe that'll help me to get rid of the guilt. And look, the guilt is real because we've all fallen short of these laws. This is the universal experience of every, you understand this, across time and culture, this is the universal experience of everyone who's ever lived. Sometimes, right? In order to assuage our guilt, we use the law to justify ourselves. We become really good law keepers. We work hard at it. We focus on it. The focus is on the law. We promote it. Make sure those Ten Commandments are out in the front yard. Right? We, we know we have shortcomings. Yes, I have some shortcomings. I'm not perfect. 
but have you seen Greg Billing? <laughs> Poor Greg's taking a beating today. He can't sit in the front. <laughs> have you seen Aaron? <laughs> See, I may have some issues. So I look at the law and it goes, well, you know, I, I, I got some issues, but you know, I'm pretty good on this. I mean, I haven't slept with anybody's wife. So I got one. I'm okay. I mean, I, I'm a pastor. Right? That must, that must do something for me. And so what then, what the law does is it makes us judgmental people, wagging our fingers at those that are a little bit less than us, making sure they understand the law. Because if I can't have any fun, you can't either. <laughs> this is what every religion over time has done. Because they're all trying to deal with that same concern, Right? What happens when I have this unwritten law and I realize I'm falling short of it? What do I do now? Do I try harder or do I just try to, try to judge others? It's a common experience. It's just at this kind of mindset that Jesus addresses the conclusion to his Sermon on the Mount, the one we've been studying all summer. And into this way of thinking, Jesus makes this horribly uncomfortable claim Here's how he wraps it up, folks. He goes, so, meaning so based on everything I've told you since these last three chapters and all summer long, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus wraps up his teaching with the golden rule, which you now know is not that exclusive. But then he says something that is. This is really troubling. My doctor wouldn't be a fan. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Now, I didn't write that Jesus did, and I don't have his email address. But Jesus says that relative to everything I've taught you so far in this sermon, you need to know, and this is going to be countercultural. I want you to hear me. I didn't say this, okay? There are not many roads. Jesus says there's just two. There are not many gates. There are not many ways to, to life. There's only, well, there's only one, but there's two ways you could pursue life. Now, if you actually want to step back and think about it, the whole Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a commentary on two ways to life. Here's what he says next. He goes, you know, every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Guys, how many trees does he talk about? Two. How many kinds of fruit does he talk about? He talks about disciples. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many, which is another word for wide, many will say to me on that day, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We drove out demons in your name. We performed miracles. And I'm going to say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So let me ask you a question. How many kinds of disciples are there really? Two. Two. And he goes on. I mean, you know, he's, he's pretty particular about this point. 
everyone, Mike talked about it last week, everybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. How many kinds of men are there? Two. How many kinds of houses are there? Two. Jesus is pretty insistent that all roads don't leave to heaven. There's actually only two ways you can go. There are not many ways. Now, what I want you to understand is this is not a standalone teaching. It's the summary of the Sermon on the Mount. You see it the whole way, even when the sermon starts out. The sermon is not about bad people and good people. It's not about people who keep the law and people who don't keep the law. It's not about people who don't care about God and people who do care about God. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is about. He starts it by saying, I want to show you a different way, a different righteousness than that of the Pharisees. And that way is not keeping the law. He starts, he goes, you know, you've heard it said, don't murder. Most of these people didn't murder. They kept the law. But I say don't hate. See, there's two kinds of ways. Uh, he gets to chapter 6 and he says, you know, uh, there's a lot of people. I see that you're caring for the poor and you're praying. But there's a different way. Here's how I, I want you to do it. I want you to care for the poor and pray, but I want you to do it so no one sees you. You see, there's two ways. There's two paths. In chapter 7, he goes, look, some people are, are judgmental. They, they worry about the speck in their brother's eye while they leave the plank in their own. What Jesus is recognizing is that both of the people he's talking to in the audience obey the law. They don't murder. Most of them don't steal like your friends. Most of them pray. Most of them take care of the poor. Uh, most of them live by the golden rule. What's different? And the answer is this, because they do it for completely different reasons. See, the people that are on the broad way, the common way, the all roads lead way, See, that's what's scary about the Broadway. The Broadway is filled with people doing good things, things that seem right. They're doing right things, but they're doing them for the wrong reason. They're doing them to get themselves right with God, to, to impress God, to, to maybe earn something with God, to get a little leverage over God, or maybe for you to get a little leverage over you, because if I'm a little bit better than you, then I'm probably okay. The Broadway is the common way of religion. The Broadway leads to judgmentalism. It leads to elevation of oneself. It leads to all of the wars and the religious persecution. Tim Keller had a great line on this. He said, this is the reason why liberals and conservatives are both on the Broadway. Because the liberals say the problem's the conservatives, and the conservatives say the problem's the liberals. But the people on the narrow way say the real problem is me. I'm the problem. I'm a sinner. So, if Jesus says there's two ways, there's a narrow way and a wide way, and if the broad way is the way of the law and religion and guilt and judgmentalism and trying harder and doing more and measuring myself against others, Jesus says, look, that's broad. Everybody's doing that. Every culture that's ever lived has lived under that, but it leads to death and destruction. Don't go that way. There's another way. The short, the short gate, the, the road less traveled. What is it? Because I thought that the, 
the narrow road would be like the religious road. I'm going to be a good guy. I'm not going to sleep with other people's wives, and I'm going to, you know, watch what I say and not take pens from the office, right? If that's not it, what is the narrow way? There's actually a question doubting Thomas, if you know Thomas, one of the disciples. He actually asked Jesus that question. Well, what is the way? To which Jesus said this, I am. I'm the way. I'm the truth and I'm the life. And you need to understand something. Nobody is coming to the Father except through me. That pesky exclusivity thing. Because it's not religion that Jesus is talking about. It's not law. It's not trying harder or doing better or penance. It's not my way's right, your way's wrong. It's no, the only way is me. All, you're right. All the other ways are the same. You're right. They're not leading you anywhere. You remember Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. Paul's chief law keeper, man. He was, you know, Pharisee of Pharisees. That's how his justification was all based off of how good he was and how he had kept the law. When he came to understand who Jesus was, here's what he wrote to the church at Rome. He goes, everybody that relies on the works of the law, right, keeping the law, being good, Everybody that wants to do that is under a curse because it's written, cursed is everybody who doesn't continue to do everything written in the book of law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them and die by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole, going back to, to what, um, an Old Testament commentary. See, systems of religion, in, in one way or another, are all based on systems of law. Do this and keep God happy. Do this and get him on your side. Do this to please him. And if you do this, you get that. But here's what Paul writes. He writes what your experience has been. That when we live this way, and most of us have lived this way all of our lives, even though our theology is right, we still live this way. When we live this way, we live under the curse of the law. We live under its guilt and under its shame and its embarrassment and its endless requirements for sacrifice and more. Jesus is the way because he came to die for you in your place, to hang on a cross for you, to take on all the guilt you're carrying because you're, you're, you know you're short on the law thing. He came to take from you all of your shame that you're carrying around because you haven't quite measured up. You remember that night in college you can't get past? All of it, all of it, I'm taking it all from you. I'm taking the penalty to it, the shame and the justice do you, I've got. All of the things that we couldn't do ourselves because we can't keep the law, we love the law, but it condemns us, he did. This is what Paul says, he goes, and therefore, there is no condemnation for you. I don't know what religious system you grew up in, but this is Christianity. Understand this, through faith, there is no condemnation for you. See, the law, I mean, if you want to live under the law, if you want to live under the law, you can live under the law. But you'll die under the law. And, and you'll face the punishment due 
the law. But for those in Christ, there's no condemnation. You know, the law condemns you. I know some pretty religious guys that would condemn you. Your parents might have condemned you. Your ex might have condemned you. Your kids might be condemning you. But God doesn't. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus and his sacrifice, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Paul says there's two, two laws at work in life. You know this. Most of us live, we, all, we still carry the law of sin and death, right? Like, I, I am fine, bro, I'm broken, I'm separated from God, I don't have the life of God living in this mortal body, and every morning I get up and feel the law of sin and death at work in my knees. But Paul says there's another, there's another law at work. I heard a great example of this this week. Uh, they compared an airplane and the law of gravity. When you take off in an airplane, did the law of gravity go away? No, it's still at work, but there's a force greater and more powerful propelling you over it. And that's the law of the Spirit of grace and mercy. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, I can't keep the law. What the law, listen to me, everybody who's trying to measure up to somebody else, for what the law was powerless to do, maybe the two most powerful words in the whole book of Romans, God did. What you could not do, you know you could not do, you've, you've lived under that, you're embarrassed by it, you've tried to figure out ways, you've either tried to think that, well, I'm probably good enough, I'm not that bad, maybe God will judge on a sliding scale, maybe I gotta go, I gotta go back to church and get my life in the world. You can't, the law condemns. What you could not do, God did. by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Jesus goes, look, I'm the way. I'm the answer to every question that every religious system has ever created for you, which is I've fallen short, and now what? The Broadway says, just try harder, do more. Look at Jim over there. He's not as good as you are. Jesus goes, don't go that way. That, you're right. All religion leads to the same path that way. It's broad. It's wide. Don't go that way. You follow me. Now, I know the argument, especially from religious people. John, you can't say that. Don't start talking about the law. I mean, you know, at one point, Paul is just so trying to get people to not live under the law. At one point, he goes, listen, the law is dead to you. And he compares it to a woman whose husband dies. He goes, you realize if a woman's husband dies, she's free to go and marry anyone. You're dead to the law. You know what that means? You're free to go do anything you want. And that scares religious people. Wow, you can't tell them that. There'll be lawlessness. If the law doesn't have any claim on me, I don't even know if I could keep myself in line. I like the law. It scares me. Here's what Paul says. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit now have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. 
Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. We know that. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. What Paul is saying is, and what, what we've what Paul is saying is all the stuff we spent all summer studying, love your enemy, don't lust, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, don't, don't judge other people, all that stuff, if you just take it as laws, it's just going to quickly condemn you quicker. It's the broad way. Jesus comes, I wasn't trying to teach you more laws. He's saying, listen, there is, there is a power available to you. There's a new spirit. There's a new law at work. It's the spirit. It's the law of the spirit. If, that, if the spirit comes to live in you, there is life and peace. You have God's spirit dwelling within you. And guess what? Sin starts to lose a little of its flavor. You start to change from the inside out. Your life begins to slowly, not instantly, and not never perfectly, slowly starts to conform to the ways of God. Now, Jesus says, there's not a lot of ways. Turns out there's only two. There's one everybody from creation onward has followed. They know the law. It's written on their hearts. Every religion has tried to construct their way, shape, or manner to deal with our inability to live up to it. And it always results in the same thing, condemnation or justification. We either work harder or do more or we hope we've been good enough. I will never forget. I had a friend of mine that was diagnosed with cancer and he had, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not just blowing some smoke at you. This is a true story. He came into my office and he had six months to live and he said, he said, what's going to happen to me? And we talked about faith and he couldn't get it through his head. He kept saying to me, I just don't know if I've done enough. I just don't know if I've done enough. He couldn't let go of the law. He couldn't let it go. There's another way. You know that? You can let go. Paul says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you re receive, this, it doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear. The spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry. You know, in the Greek, Abba kind of means like daddy. Dad. The spirit testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. You know, at the end of the day, is the band, you guys can come up. I guess it's true, all religions really do lead to the same place, right? Either self-condemnation or pride. Jesus said, they all lead to destruction. I know that's not a PC thing to say. I know it'd be good to say they're all equal and as long as you try to pick one and just follow the rules and live your best life and It'll be okay, but Jesus seems to indicate that that's not true. There's not a lot of ways. There's two ways, and one of them has a really bad ending. And he said, I'm the other way. I'm the only way. Maybe you have spent your whole life, and this happens to all of us, that even we understand Christian theology, but we can't let go of the law. Maybe you've spent your whole life trying to get to God, to find forgiveness, to feel hope, to not worry. 
And I don't know what system of religion you've come out of, but it's probably taught that God is up there somewhere. Just keep climbing, keep toiling, keep hoping, keep praying, keep working. And maybe one day God will say that you were worthy enough to climb up to him. Because we've been taught that he's elusive. We have to earn our way up there. But Jesus makes this kind of bold claim when he dismisses all of these other religions, I think what Jesus is saying is that any God that forces you to earn his love isn't really worth your worship. See, this is where I differ with some friends. Jesus is not a religion. Every religion points to some way to get past our condemning conscience against, uh, to come up, figure out a way to, to get past us being short, to find some peace with God. And Jesus flips it all upside down. He, Jesus, Jesus did not come. Listen, Jesus did not come to, to tell you what you need to do to get to God. Jesus came to show you what God was willing to do in order to get to you. I've shared it over the years how much I like McManus's take on this, Erwin McManus. Here's his quote. He said that the name God has been used by every culture and every religion to talk about us searching for God. But Jesus is the name we use when we talk about God searching for us. Jesus seems so exclusive. No one comes to the Father except by me. But what he's saying is, I just so desperately need you to know the truth. No one else is coming for you. And why would you spend your whole life trying to earn the approval and love of a God who's indifferent to you? They're not coming. And any God that's not coming for you is not worth you running after. And so let's pray. Father, in my mind right now, I'm picturing all of us holding on to this rope of the law. It's been buried so deep into us, Lord God, that we understand the theology of grace, but so few of us have ever tasted its reality, its significance. I think we'd be a lot happier people, Lord, if we had. Our prayer, my prayer for all of us this morning, Lord God, is we would let go of the law and its judgment and its condemnation. And we would grasp tightly to the only way, the only truth, the only life, Jesus Christ our Lord.